Dr. Rachel Diner, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how's it going? <laughs> it's going pretty dandy. How, how are you? Great, great. All things considered, very, very good. Good. Uh, for people who don't know you, uh, you have a PhD in marine biology. You're currently researching, uh, you're doing re- really interesting research with microbiome in oysters. Yes, that is Which correct. already is incredibly unique. So uh, first things first, tell me how you got to, to, that, to that, this point in your life, essentially. Sure. Yeah, I have um, what I like to call a windy uh, but fun career path. So I was a, um, a biology major as an undergrad. And after that, I wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do, but I was really interested in the environment um, and how humans interact with the environment. So I actually ended up going to law school and I studied environmental law and policy out here in San Diego, which is where I'm still located. Um, so yeah, I studied environmental law and policy. Um, I was surfing a lot. Uh, that was one of the big things I got into when I came to the West Coast. Um, and throughout that interaction, I just became even more interested in sort of what are we doing to the environment and how are we then impacted by what we're doing to the environment. So I practiced law for a couple of years, but I just really loved science. My husband was a scientist. Um, and so I ended up going back to graduate school and I studied marine microbiology for my master's and then my PhD. Um, okay. And now I'm a postdoc. So after graduating, I continued to do research and now I'm in um, the second year of my postdoc. And you're originally from Georgia. I am, yes. Yes, the East Coast. <laughs> yeah, so that's quite the transition then. Yeah, it really was um, in many ways, geographically and also um, in terms of culture. It was a pretty big, pretty big shift and my family still lives out there. But part of it was I really wanted to be near the ocean and surfing and San Diego is probably the best place in the United States for that. So that was very attractive. Um, I have, to, I have to ask you. For me. <laughs> I have to ask you really quickly, uh, have you gone surfing in Portugal? I have not been surfing in Portugal, but it's huge there. I've seen the videos and it looks pretty terrifying. Um, I I'm, I'm, would consider myself a pretty okay surfer, but I'm definitely not at that level at this point. All right. I had to ask because I, I'm absolutely in love with Portugal. I spent two months there and, and I saw the surfers and I was like, I wonder if she surfed in Portugal. So I had to ask you. Um, let's start talking about the, the your, your research, essentially. So. Why are we studying the microbiome in oysters? Sure, that's a great question. Um, like I was saying, I'm really interested in human interactions with the marine environment. And part of that is, you know, what are we doing in the environment? Part of it is what are we getting from the ocean that benefits us and how can we maintain that? Um, and oysters are really important part of that because we eat oysters and other aquaculture species. So it's a huge food source throughout the world. Um, And in addition to us eating them, they're also cleaning up the environment. So oysters can filter up to like 30 gallons of water a day. And so they concentrate um, nutrients and algae, and that's cleaning the water for us and also removing all of that from our ocean. And then we can eat them, hopefully, if they're not too polluted. And so um, I study oysters as kind of a model aquaculture system, and their microbes are hopefully doing beneficial things for them and for the environment. And we're trying to understand what that is. Now, is that the same with mussels or are, um, are oysters unique from mussels? Yeah, oysters and mussels have really different microbial communities that live inside them. And um, there are a lot of studies on both of them. There aren't too many comparative studies. There's a few of them. And we don't quite understand why they're different, if that has to do with 
you know, how their physiology is different, if it has to do with how their environments are different. So we don't really know um, what explains those differences, but we know that they have really distinct microbial communities. Okay, because I've always wondered what the difference is. But uh, let's talk about the microbiome. Let's actually take a step even further back here, because we hear the term microbiome now. It's kind of like a a hot topic in health news. Um, So what exactly is a microbiome? That's a great question. So microbiome is basically a group of microorganisms that are associated with a particular environment. And depending on who you talk to, so most people kind of will say like, oh, the, the coastal microbiome or the ocean microbiome. But, um, but some people will insist, no, it's specific to a particular like tissue type or organism. So it's a really relative term, but it's basically um, with a given type of environment, what are the microbes that are associated with that? And you're usually talking about microbes that are permanently associated. So for example, we're eating lots of bacteria that's in the food that we eat and it just passes through. And those are called transient microbes. And so we usually don't consider those part of the actual microbiome. Um, So you're looking at mostly somewhat permanent microbes. And when I say microbes, that's another topic where people kind of vary. So, you know, there's viruses, there's bacteria, there's archaea, there's um, protists, which are single-celled eukaryotes. And some people consider them microbes and some, um, particularly like a classical view is that those are not actual microbes. I'm of the view that they are. Um, so that, that definition is also, um, variable. Oh, okay. So a virus can be part of a microbiome? Yeah. Viruses are considered part of the microbiome, even though they're not technically considered alive. (laughs) Whoa, that's wild. So have you actually seen viruses as part of the oyster microbiomes? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, one of the biggest threats to oyster aquaculture is a a virus that infects oysters, and it can wipe out entire populations. So it can have really terrible economic impacts, and um, it's highly infectious. um, And it also interacts with other environmental factors. So different environmental conditions can trigger this infection. So it's a really actually a big topic of um of study in the oyster microbiome field. What's the name of that virus? Uh it's it's the Austrian herpes virus. So it's a herpes virus that is very host specific to oysters. So it only affects like particular oysters. oysters. Okay, but could it actually decimate the whole uh, whole population? Um it usually doesn't. There are some resistant uh strains and that's actually something people are studying a lot is what makes certain strains of these oysters resistant and others more susceptible. And that might also be related to their microbiome. So they might have microbes that are allowing them to, you know, resist infection. Um, so it's not completely understood. It's a very active area of research. Um, but it so far, it doesn't seem to wipe out entire populations. Um, but it can cause some pretty big damage. Now, I don't know oysters at all. My my girlfriend loves them. It's her, probably her favorite <laughs> food in the world, which is why we're moving to the East Coast. Nice. <laughs> you know? It's definitely a reason why. Um, so are there different oyster species? Yeah, there's a lot of different species of oysters. Um, and actually, the one that we study is an invasive species. It's uh, known as the Pacific oyster. Um, and it actually is not native to San Diego, but it's sort of taken over um, a lot of the area where different oyster species live. But there's several different species. They're different sizes. They have different flavors. There's like oyster connoisseurs that could probably taste one and tell you, oh, yes, that's a that's an Eastern oyster and it's prime. <laughs> so 
Oh, that's There's cool. A lot of variation there. <laughs> now, um, the research that you're doing with the microbiome in oysters, uh, how is that applicable to human health? Well, so there's a couple ways that it is applicable to human health. One is um, one of the things I study is how what makes oysters accumulate human pathogens. So there's actually a lot of bacteria that can make people ill through seafood poisoning, for example, food poisoning, um, that come either from the ocean, so they could live naturally in the ocean, or they come from the land when, for example, there's a rainfall and it washes a bunch of um, pollutants or sometimes there's sewage spills. So that can bring pathogens into the water and oysters are concentrating all of these. And so if a person eats an oyster that has a high concentration of these, they have a likelihood of getting sick. And so one thing we're trying to understand is what makes an oyster accumulate a lot of these pathogens. Um, and are there other microbial controls in the oyster that might be keeping those concentrations down or increasing them perhaps? Yeah, that's really curious because it, do you guys think that there's a way to actually, I don't know, like, is, is there a way to make oysters never give humans food poisoning ever again? Is that even well, a possibility? So that would be great. That's a pretty uh, bold statement. But there are actually some really interesting research looking at phage therapy. So phages are viruses that infect bacteria, and they're usually very species specific. Um, so some people are identifying phages that are associated with human pathogen species. And then the idea is they would then run water with those phages uh, through the oyster system. And then it would kill the bacteria inside of the oyster so that they were then safe for human consumption. So that's a possible you know, future application of this kind of work. Um, and then another thing that we're doing is trying to see if there's microbes in the oysters that can break down pollutants. So there's a lot of chemical pollutants, nutrient pollutants, um, even plastics that are coming from the coast. And this problem is getting really, really bad, and it's only going to get worse in the future. And so one thing I'm really interested in is seeing if there are microbes inside of oysters, which are already filtering and concentrating these pollutants, that could potentially break them down and then improve water quality for everybody, including the oysters and humans. So the, yeah, that could be a very interesting application because you could identify a highly polluted area. Um, can you plant oysters? I don't even know how they work. Yeah, absolutely. You can. Um, there's artificial oyster reefs um, because they're known to be really beneficial to coastal ecosystems. So people are already building artificial oyster reefs or muscle lines. They'll have like muscles that are on a, a line and suspended in the water column. Um, so you can deploy these clusters of oysters or mussels in different areas as you choose. It's definitely a possibility. Oh, wow. So it's already being done is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. It's done a lot in connection with, um, for example, aquaculture, because when they are feeding aquaculture operations, um, which are already coastal and there's already a lot of nutrients and pollution coming into the environment, um, they tend it tends to get kind of dirty. And so they're already using oyster shellfish basically to clean up those areas. Um, not, not particularly to detoxify them for other pollutants, but for nutrients, it kind of mitigates the impacts of, um, of this aquaculture operation. So this means that you can potentially use something other than just oysters. For what? Sorry. For, for cleaning up, uh, for helping with uh, pollution. Oh, sure. Yeah. I think one of the good things about shellfish, especially shellfish that are already living in polluted environments, is that they're very resilient. So they're already adapted to living in these really challenging environments where there's a lot of human activity. Um, so pretty much anything along 
along those areas would be a really good candidate for this. But the other the other thing is that they're filter feeders. So the fact that they're concentrating these things um, makes it makes it much more applicable. Whereas you might have some more sensitive species like corals are also filter feeders, but they're living in these low nutrient environments. And so they would probably react very poorly to something like high levels of pollution. Uh, that leads me to my next question then. Are there corals on the West Coast? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. And I should know the answer to it, but I don't. <laughs> okay, and some of my colleagues at Scripps would, would probably kill me for not having an immediate answer to that, but I don't have one. <laughs> That's okay. And let's be clear, actually, you, you work out of a lab. Um, are you still working out of the Gilbert lab? Yeah, I am. It's at uh, Scripps Institution of Oceanography. So it's right next to a really beautiful pier. Um, we took a hiatus there for a while right after COVID hit. And now we're sort of operating at limited capacity so that we can you know, all space out appropriately and safely. Okay. And your colleagues also research, um, do you guys have like different things? So like you research oysters, they research other, uh, other creatures or how does it work? Yeah. My lab is very diverse. A lot of times you'll have a, a kind of specific research theme, but we kind of do everything microbiome. So there's people that are researching bat microbiomes. Um, a lot of research is done on the built environment. So what kind of microbes are associated with the buildings? Um, that you know, we're constructing and that we're living in every day, like our homes. Um, there's people studying the microbes that live on spaceships. There's people studying the microbes that live um, like in the deep sea. So there, it's a huge range of research. And then there's kind of a, a small group of us that's studying, there's two of us that study oysters. Um, one person studies corals, one person is studying how to like developing sensors to detect pollution in the environment. So. We have a marine contingent, but it really spans pretty much every area of research you can imagine. Yeah, that sounds really neat. Now, I'm not a scientist. I don't know how labs work. And so I'm curious, do you sometimes gather with your colleagues and go, guys, I found this really cool thing. And then somebody else goes, oh, my God, this happens in bats, too. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the benefits of a lab group that kind of we use similar tools to study the microbiome. Um, but since we're working in different systems, we're all discovering something new from our own relevant, you know, bodies of research. And so we definitely have those moments where somebody's like, oh, I ran into that problem with my system. I can help you out with this. Um, and it's really, it's a really great environment to work in. Yeah, it sounds really neat. Um, so in your specific research, what's something that has really surprised you so far? Oh, that's a great question. I feel like I'm always surprised every single day. Um, yeah, I think, um, I think, so for me, I, my background actually before I joined this lab, I was working on um, microbes that are kind of free living in the environment. So I worked on algae and bacteria. And this was the first time I started working on host associated microbes. And it was amazing to me how each small tissue or each type of fluid in a host has its own specific microbial community that the host is kind of tuning itself to. So, you know, it's supporting the growth of microbes that are beneficial. It's fighting against microbes that are detrimental. And so it was really incredible to me how complicated, not just that these animal systems are, including humans, but that within each of our tissues, there's this whole community that's being established and maintained. Um, that's, that's really every day cool. amazing, yeah. Yeah. Um... We hear a lot about the human gut microbiome, right? I mean, that's a, a really 
I would say fairly new area of research. I don't think it's 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 been something that's been researched very thoroughly in the past, right? Definitely in the last decade or so, it's been pretty pretty thoroughly researched. So I think we're you know there's still a lot of amazing things to be discovered. But um in the in the infant days of microbiome research, we were just trying to see what's there, like what does the community consist of, what species are more abundant in one condition or another condition, and now we're trying to take the next step and figure out, well, what are these microbes actually doing? Because that tells you why is a host keeping them around, for example. So that's sort of, there's a a pretty huge body of gut microbiome literature out there, but it's really starting to develop into the functional mechanisms that these microbes are employing. Okay. So do you personally know a lot about the human gut? No, 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 not really. (laughs) So you know, but you know how oysters affect the human gut, or am I am I wrong on this? Um, I know. I guess my knowledge of the human gut microbiome extends to um, how does a human respond when they consume like a pathogen that came from the marine environment, um, and even then, I would say my understanding is pretty limited compared to people that specialize in it because it's a whole it's a whole world unto itself, a whole body of literature, a whole like rich research history. And so um, I would say my knowledge of that is definitely not as deep as many of the people in my lab, but I've been learning a lot being in a lab that works on human microbiomes. And that's been really interesting. Are there, so then let me ask you some questions and you just tell me if you can answer them (laughs) about the pathogens uh, transmitted by, or I guess transmitted by would be the right way to say it, uh, by oysters. Uh, We know that people can get sick if they eat, like, let's say, a bad oyster. Um, What other things can be, uh, I guess, transmitted is maybe, I I don't know if that's the right word to use because, (laughs) you know, but when you consume an oyster, other than the typical kind of um, food poisoning you would get, what else could you get from an oyster? Oh, all kinds of things. And that applies to oysters and also the fish that we're eating. So for example, mercury is a really big problem, um, which is why it's recommended that you don't eat certain types of fish in more than once or twice a week. Um, so heavy metal contamination is a big issue. Um, plastics. So some organisms will accumulate microplastics, which are really tiny plastic particles. Um, and we don't really know the effects that those have on humans. That's a pretty active and new area of research. So we know that plastics are getting transmitted to humans through what they eat that comes from the ocean, but we don't know how it's affecting people. Um, so yeah, metals, um, you know, there's lots of pesticides and other types of chemicals that are known to like stick to and accumulate inside of oysters. So uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of things that that you can be picking up, but it's really hard to understand how that's affecting human health, because we have so many other things that we're exposed to in our environments. Um, So those studies are really challenging to conduct and really link it to link what we know is happening to the the impact on human health. Speaking of microplastics, are you seeing a lot of them? Yeah, well, so the microplastics are really tiny. So you have to, a lot of them, you have to look under a microscope to see. And there are groups at Scripps that that's like their area of research. But we see a lot of huge plastic particles. So I actually was out doing field work yesterday and um, in San Diego Bay. And we had a lot of rain recently. So we won't see rain for like six months, pretty much. And then we'll see, you know, a few rain events. And I hadn't sampled for a while when I went out, there was just tons of plastic and paper and trash. And it was, you know, it was really shocking. And it was just dispersed among the oysters. Like it was kind of, you had to dig the oysters out of the trash, basically. 
And yeah, so, and in those part, those plastic pieces or styrofoam pieces are breaking down into smaller and smaller particles because of, you know, the environmental stress and the temperature. So, so definitely there's a lot of it in the environment. Yeah, I actually, I, I sample ponds, as you know, so I, I'm a big microscope nerd. So I sample a lot of freshwater ponds and I started noticing things once in a while, especially like blue and purple and pink things that usually aren't in nature. And it was finally, I was like, oh my God, these are microplastics. Yeah. It's crazy. They're everywhere. Yeah, it's really, it's pretty disturbing. And so that that is a huge area of research now. And it's going to be more so in the future because the amount of plastics and just debris in general that are going into the ocean is just increasing exponentially, both because the production is increasing and the things that have already been produced are continuing to get, you know, thrown away or thrown on the beach or whatever. So um, that, in my view, is like a really important research topic for the future. And that's something that an oyster can't filter, obviously, right? Well, the small particles, they can, they can take up the small, the really small particles, the larger ones will get excluded. Um, but yeah, pretty much like most, most marine animals um, that have been studied have been shown to be able to take up plastics or debris of some size. There's very few that like, you know, won't or can't take it up, which is unfortunate. <laughs> Okay. And what about, um, so the threats, the threats to oyster microbiomes, other than plastics and maybe pollution, um, what kind of like mean bacteria are out there that are like really decimating them? I don't know. I mean, the virus that I talked about before is kind of the most studied, best known one. There's a lot of bacteria um, in the genus Vibrio. And uh, Vibrio bacteria are really interesting. I studied them for my PhD, actually, because they can be both human pathogens and pathogens of other animals. And different Vibrio species will infect different, you know, different animals. So there's some species that infect humans, and there's completely different species that can infect uh, oysters. And so Vibrio pathogens are a really big problem for oysters. And actually, they really like warm temperatures, so they tend to grow faster in warmer temperatures. So climate change is going to be a big problem in the future for humans and oysters alike in terms of the Vibrio pathogens. Yeah, that's a really, really big one for sure. Um, how long have you been studying them? Like, have you actually seen the effects of climate change yet? Well, it's hard to say. I always, I always say if you're going to look at the effects of climate change, so climate, we're talking about these long-term cycles. Um, and so you have to have sort of a relevant time scale. So it's not really possible to study climate change in a year or two, or really even five, you have to look at these kind of decadal scales. And some people have done that. I haven't personally done that. Um, but what I will say is, when I was looking at Vibrio pathogenic species for my PhD, it hadn't been studied in San Diego, but we know the waters are pretty warm. And so it was interesting to see where we found them very abundant were also where there were really warm temperatures. And that's not surprising. That's kind of what we would expect. But what that shows us is that, okay, this is conforming to what we know about their temperature preferences. And if it's already really warm in San Diego, then this is just going to, you know, change. And the geographic distribution of these species is probably going to change also as temperature increases. Okay, which actually has now led me to be curious about another thing, which is evolution, the evolution of the microbiome. Does it change um, with the growth period of the oyster? Well, I'm not, I can't speak as to the time scale that that evolution happens. I don't think there have been enough studies on it, but it's a really interesting question because 
it's definitely known that, you know, microbes, microbes can evolve and change to adapt to their host. So one example is um, if there is an obligate symbiotic microbe, which basically means it has to live within a certain specific host. Um, what you'll see over time is once it, when it's introduced, it'll have a large genome and then it will start to lose genes um, because it's expensive energetically to maintain a really large genome. And it will basically start to rely on the host's functions in order to survive, which is why it eventually becomes completely dependent on the host. So that's kind of an inter interesting like evolutionary adaptation. You'll see smaller genome sizes for um, for obligate symbionts. I, people haven't really seen that in the oyster literature from what I'm aware of, um, but it's definitely, it's really interesting and it's a, it's a strong possibility that they do have microbes that are adapting along with them. Um, how, how long do oysters live? Oh, you know what? I actually, somebody asked me this the other day and I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, I, I, I don't know. And I'm sure it's species dependent as well. I do know that they grow about an inch a year. Um, so they'll start off as this kind of planktonic, like swimming larvae, and then they'll settle. And then each year they grow an inch. So when we're, in their, when we're out in the field sampling, we know, okay, this is like about a three-year-old oyster. And that depends on the species of oyster, but that's just the one we're working with. But I do not know how long they live. <laughs> okay. Because I was curious with um, human uh, gut microbiome, for example, I'm always curious to, to learn more about that. And I, and I was wondering if it was like in oysters where as you age, does the microbiome change? That's a really good question. I know that people have studied different kind of life stages of oysters. So from larval stages to adult, to juveniles, to adults, and they do have different microbiomes, but I don't know about like a one-year-old adult oyster to a three-year-old adult oyster, or if anybody's looked at that yet. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case but I, I'm not sure. What about, okay, I have another quirky question for you sure. then. Um, fecal matter transplant is a bit, another big thing that we hear about in humans. Is that something that, can you do that with oysters? I don't know if you could do it with oysters. Um, it would probably be challenging, but because they're filter feeding things, they can be selective about what they ingest. Um, and they actually only eat like certain sized particles. So you'd have to be very tricky about what you did. You could definitely um, feed them a particular kind of bacteria if it could like attach to their food source. So for example, if you had algae and you wanted to introduce a beneficial bacteria, you could kind of incubate those together, have the bacteria attached to the algae and then feed it to the oyster. That's something you can do. Um, but I don't know about... Um, about like a direct fecal matter transplant because they're because they're so picky about. It. But I know that people do this with other marine animals. So somebody else in my lab is studying um, fecal transplants in dolphins, for example. Ooh, that's really cool. Yeah. Huh. Wow. So other than so, you're really really just devoted to oysters, right? I mean, you don't sometimes go. Ah, today I feel like studying shrimp. Well, sometimes I do. So that's one good thing about working in a really like collaborative lab environment that studies a lot of things is you have opportunities. So um, for example, after COVID hit, my lab was doing um, a hospital study looking at what types of bacteria were associated with high levels of COVID-19 virus and that, or so, sorry, SARS-CoV-2. Uh, but um, basically they were like, oh, can somebody help us with this analysis? And I was like, well, I'm not 
a human microbiologist, but I know how to do these types of microbiome analysis for my oyster work. I can help out with that. And they're like, yeah, sure, you know, come on board. So I was able to do like a small part of that study. And that was interesting because I got to learn a lot about, for example, human gut microbes. And um, So what, what did you learn about the human gut microbe that you, you could share with us? So I actually don't know the status of that paper right now, so I cannot speak to the results of it until I confirm that with the authors. Um, but personally, you know, I learned a lot about the basics of, okay, what's associated with a healthy human gut because they sampled both healthy, um, healthy individuals and sick patients. Um, and so, you know, for me, that was sort of a basic primer and like, oh, what would you expect to see in these microbial communities? Okay. So what would you, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious, like what makes a good human gut? Um, I couldn't, you mean like what are the most- like the microbiome. I really yeah. can't tell you that off the top of my head. Again, I should, to, I should be able to recite that being in the lab that I'm in, but I, I can't. So. That's okay. Hey, this this happens all the time when I have scientists on, because I'm like, you know, I have an, an expert on Mars, for example, and I'll be like, okay, but what about Pluto? And then he'll be like, no, we can't go there, Julie. So, you know, yeah, this is what happens when like you let saying, your curiosity. Like, yeah, it's like saying what's the most dominant animal in like a particular rainforest ecosystem <laughs> i'm like um a hippo i don't know like, just. that's all right do people because you know I, i'm sure your friends and your family know that you're a scientist do people ask you quirky questions all the time all the time yeah and i get a lot of when i say i'm a marine biologist people um think that i work with animals we call them charismatic megafauna um and so people are always like oh, like, do you work with dolphins? Like, do you know about why dolphins get sick from this? I was like, I don't know anything about dolphins at all. Um, but sometimes I'll just make something up, you know, to see if they believe me. They usually do. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, you can pretty much get away with a lot of stuff when you tell people you're a doctor of something, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Except for when they need medical help. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm not that kind of doctor. <laughs> no. Exactly. What about things like science communication? Now, I know your your husband, your husband's an expert in that field. Um, you uh, Do you frequently speak to the media or do interviews about your research? Yeah, I've given a couple. It's usually um, people wanting to know what kinds of microbes make people sick in the ocean. So living in San Diego, everyone always wants to know, after it rains, how long do I have to wait to go surfing? Or what should I be worried about? And so I, I answer a lot of those questions for media interviews. Um, I haven't talked a lot about my oyster research because it's pretty new, but um, but hopefully, since I hope it will become a really like helpful system in the future, that will that will change. That's cool. Now, do you feel that there's um, a lack of scientific? Uh, communication in the particular field that you're in. So I know marine biology, like you said, most people assume that you work with dolphins because that's what we imagine when we think, you know, non-scientists think of a microbio, uh, sorry, a marine biologist, we think dolphins, whales, sea otters. Um, we don't well, think, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. We don't think microbiome of oysters. Um, so what do you think could be improved in the communication for your specific field? That's a really good question. Um, you know, I have to say, so Scripps Institution of Oceanography, where I work, is a, a really big, you know, a big department within UCSD, and they have an incredible communications department. I've always been really in awe of that. So 
I, I have to say, as far as my understanding of science communication, they do a really good job of communicating that. Um, and I don't think that's the case for all all places that do marine science research. So I do think there's always the problem of communicating really highly technical stuff to um, to a lay audience and explaining why it's important for the everyday person without sounding super jargony. Because that's always such a struggle for scientists. You know, we get into our fields and we're writing papers that are really technical. And then we have to just explain, well, like, who cares? I mean, that's really the fundamental, who, who cares and why should we care? So, you know, I think that's like an individual challenge for all of us. Um, but I think, I think particularly my department does that really well, but I can't really speak to other, you know, other universities or organizations. Do you find that for yourself personally, because you worked in law, and law is another one of those fields where everything is jargony, it's, it's legalese, as they call it. Um, do you find that that's helped you explain your science to the layperson? Um, do I feel like being in law helped that? Yeah. Honestly, I think it's probably done the opposite. I've, I went from one like highly technical jargony place to another. And so it is definitely a, a constant challenge for me, but it's so important. I mean, it's everything to be able to describe why you're doing what you're doing and like why you care about it. Um, so it's just something I'm constantly improving on and also just trying to see other scientists that do a good job of it. So my, um, my supervisor, Jack does, you know, a lot of outreach and he's so great. He tells such a great story. And I remember the first time I saw him give a talk, I was just like, oh my gosh, I could watch this for like hours. Um, and so it's really good to have those those types of role models that you can see telling these stories appropriately. Um, but beyond that, yeah, we're all always trying to get better at that. <laughs> and you're doing a postdoc. That's what you're doing right now, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. And how long is that? Um, that's a great question. So it, you know, traditionally what you do is you do your PhD. And then if you wanted to have an academic career, you would do a postdoc for maybe a year or two and then you get a faculty job after that. Um, that's been changing radically over the years because there's so many PhDs and there's a really limited number of faculty jobs. Um, but beyond that, there's so many more things to do with science. So I don't think it's just like the contraction of faculty job openings. I think it's the expansion of science. You know, there's science communication, there's biotech, there's conservation. So there's so many new things you can do with your scientific knowledge. And so, um, but in part because of that competition, postdocs are really long now. So I know people that have done like six, seven year postdocs. And then after that, they actually have to transition to a different type of position because you can only officially be a postdoc for a certain amount of time. So, um, so my goal would be somewhere around like three or four years. That's pretty common for science, but it all depends on when I'm able to get a job, which is. Yeah, which, which, which is why I'm asking, because I think you can. I don't know if, if people could study the microbiome of oysters for, for 20, you know, 20 years. I don't know if that's something that you want to do. It, so what what is your, your plan when you're done your postdoc? Yeah, well, I have the kind of unfortunate benefit of, of my area of interest is how humans impact the coastal environment and how that in turn affects humans. And that's not changing anytime soon. I mean, you know, the population of the world and particularly of people that live near the coast is just increasing constantly. And so um, so there will be no lack of research subjects for me. Um, and I'm really interested in oyster microbiomes. But as I mentioned, I've worked with free living microbes. So I'm just really interested 
in um, in coastal microbes in general, whether they're free living or inside of a host, and how we kind of indirectly interact with them. So, but, what are some examples of free living microbes? Yeah, that's a, so. For example, um, I was talking about those vibrio pathogens. So, yeah. there are species of vibrio bacteria that just kind of live in the water column, and they frequently attach to stuff. So, they can swim around with their flagella, and then they can also attach to either living or dead microbes or like you know sediment particles. Um, get nut- get nutrition from them, and then swim away to the next nutrient source. So that's an example of a free-living microbe, um, whereas some microbial species can't move around and they need to be attached to something, um, you know, in order to survive and divide. Okay, so we're not talking uh, marine uh, tardigrades or anything like that. No, but what another interesting area of research. Yes. <laughs> Those are really hardy fellows there. Have you ever seen one? Yeah, we had some in the lab. Actually, one of my friends who also studies algae in my PhD, she had pet tardigrades. And we would kind of just keep them next to our lab bench. And every once in a while, we'd be like, are they still alive? And they always were. You might have to look for a little bit. Um, And then one time she forgot about them and like the dish dried up. And we're like, oh my gosh, they're dead. And like, but then we found them. They were still in there because they can survive a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're they're really really fascinating. One of the things I'm really anxious to to do once I move to the East Coast is start looking for marine tardigrades, because I have land tardigrades living on my balcony. So that's one of the special things about uh, where I live right now is I can go outside at any moment in time and, and collect at least twenty tardigrades from my balcony. Um, so <laughs> that's with your microscope. You could just sit there all day with those guys. <laughs> exactly. Um, that's really cool. Now, I know that you have a lot of, uh, a lot of other interests uh, outside of science and surfing is one of them. <laughs> so let's talk about that for a minute because I've never tried surfing. I'm kind of jealous that you've, uh, you've gotten into that. I guess it's a sport. Um, is it a sport or a hobby for you? Um, it's definitely a sport. And I think, um, I'm sure everybody that does like a physical activity considers it a sport. So, and then we get defensive if you called it anything else, but you know, I'm not at like a professional or even semi-professional level for me, it is a hobby. Um, but it's fun. It's a great, especially since the pandemic, it's been a really great way to be able to kind of socialize because you can stay separated from people like your friends out in the water. Um, but yeah, I love it. It's really, it's really how I originally got involved with like marine microbiology, because I was getting like six ear infections every year and trying to figure out why that was happening. Um, but yeah, it's it's a really... Wait a minute. So you were getting ear infections from from microbes? Yeah. 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 Hold on. Hold on. I didn't know that was a thing. Oh, definitely. Tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know all the different species that can cause them, but... Um, but yeah, you can definitely get ear infections from microbes. People, you know, get get sick from ingesting water, like swallowing seawater if there's been a sewage spill, for example. That happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> or wound okay. infections. So again, back to these vibrio bacteria, a lot of times like um, surfers or fishermen, particularly on the East Coast, if you have an open cut, they can like infect the open cut and it can be really... Um, a really fast progressing illness. It's really scary. So, wow. So when you were surfing, you were getting all these ear infections because you were getting your head in the water, you were taking a spill or whatever. And then what, what would you do? You'd have to go home and treat it or like, does it yeah, go away? Yeah, go to the doctor and they give you some like antibiotic eardrops. And I remember at one point I just like 
kept the tube and would kind of self-diagnose, which you really, really shouldn't do that, but, but it works. You know. So this is uh, a regular part of a surfer's life then? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and actually it's, it's kind of interesting when you are in cold water surfing a lot, you can get what's called like a, I don't know the actual medical name for it, but you can get a bone growth in your ear. So like a bone in your ear starts to grow in, I guess, to try to protect the eardrum. And so I was getting all these ear infections and I asked the doctor about it and he's like, oh yeah, you have like bone growth inside of your ear from being in the cold water all the time. You need to start wearing earplugs. Um, really? Yep. The things you learn. Oh my God. That's so hardcore, Rachel. <laughs> but it's really fun. It's a great sport and I, I just love it. It's hard to imagine not doing it. Is it, was it hard? Like, when did you actually start surfing? Like, how old were you? Were you like a little girl? Were you a teenager? I was a teenager. I was like 19. Um, I was in college and I studied abroad in Australia. And, uh, and so I started surfing out there because the, the surfing culture is huge. Obviously, I did not learn to surf in Georgia. I've still never been surfing in Georgia before. But, um, but yeah, so it was, it was huge out there. And then I came back to Georgia for my senior year of college. And I was like, oh, man, I have to keep doing that. Like where? So when I applied to law school, I applied to a lot of places, but almost all of them, like most of them were the West Coast of the United States, just straight down the coast. There's an obvious pattern here. And then US, University of San Diego was the first school that I heard back from. I was like, oh, well, I just wasted money on all those other applications because I'm obviously going here for school. Now, this is interesting because you went to law school. You did your, P- your, your I guess you did a, a bachelor's, a, a master's, and a PhD? Uh, yes. Yes. How did you find the time? <laughs> How did you find the time to do some surfing? Um, that's a great question. I, I can't answer that specifically, but I do know that like if I'm not doing some kind of exercise, I get really anxious and stressed. And I think especially when you're staring at books and the screen and writing and reading all the time, you really need to just step away and get out into nature. So that's always been something that I prioritized. So um, was it to the detriment of other things? I don't know. I, you know, I can't answer that, but it was definitely the right, the right decision to take that time away from me. <laughs> I'm glad that's a really good example of like work-life balance because I know a lot of, you know, people who have done their PhDs and literally they were in their books from like 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., you know, and so. Yeah, the PhD especially is a really, a really intense time. And that's something now when I'm like mentoring undergrads or grad students, I try to talk a lot about like work-life balance and how I was, you know, how I was able to establish mine and how important that is for your happiness, because I don't think that was traditionally valued in academia and by some people it still isn't but I do think there's a good positive trend going of trying to like you know basically it's about mental well-being and mental health and and a recognition that we need to improve this in our entire workforce in order for everybody to be happy. I'm really glad you brought that up because I've brought that topic up a lot. Um, A lot of people who listen to this are non-scientists, but a lot of them are actually academics. So, you know, they're, they're going through that, that kind of struggle with perhaps more traditional uh, leadership that doesn't give them the room or the space to play or to be playful or to have breaks. Um, So that's really, really interesting that you bring that up. So I guess now that you're in your postdoc, there's a little bit more freedom now, isn't there? Well, that's actually a good question. Sometimes there is and sometimes there isn't. So I have my own funding from a fellowship. So that does actually give me a lot of research freedom, which is great. 
Um, it's not always the case. You don't have that if you're funded by like your advisor's grant, for example. But the, the other side of that is there's not a lot of time in a postdoc. So for your PhD, you have anywhere from five to eight years to develop your research theme and your area of expertise. And then in your postdoc, you're expected to do this in like one to four or five years. And so there is, there's a little bit of freedom. There's definitely a lot more independence because you're expected to, you know, be an independent researcher, but you're supposed to do it in a much shorter time. So it, it kind of balances out. Okay. And do you also teach? Um, I did a lot of teaching in um, grad school. I haven't, have I taught yet as a postdoc? I have not taught yet as a postdoc, okay. um, but I haven't been a postdoc for that long. So that's part of why, but I think I will probably end up teaching next year. I'll probably teach um, a class at one of the local community colleges. Okay. Very cool. Um, you have two kids, right? I do. Babies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you, do you think that, uh, you know, if one of them came up to you and said, mommy, I want to be a scientist. <laughs> Is that, is that something that you would you would obviously encourage? Yeah, I I love science. And I you've spoken to my husband Ailey before who kind of went the science path and then became a science communicator. So I'm interested in as what what he said in answer to that question, but I love being a scientist. It's like you know, I feel like I'm learning something new every day and it's just so interesting to be delving into this like unknown territory and learning things that people literally have never known about the world before. So I would be highly encouraging about it, but also practical, you know, I think a lot of people, myself included, thought they wanted something when they were younger because it sounded really interesting. And then when you actually do the job, it turns out to be something different than what you thought it might be. So like, for me, it's cool. I get to go out in the field and collect oysters and it like it's fun to do field work. But then 99% of the work is actually done analyzing DNA sequences on a computer. That's <laughs> the overwhelming majority of my work. So, um, so, but yeah, I'm, I, that's one of my favorite things about being a parent is just trying to see what they're interested in and, uh, and kind of living that through them. Is there anything you do differently in the path that you've taken so far? No, nothing. And I think about that frequently, you know, to kind of check in and say like, okay, am I making, am I making the right decisions? Am I happy with where I'm at? And um, yeah, I love it. And especially, you know, when I did decide to switch from law to science, that was a really hard transition. I gave up a lot of hard work and like, uh, you know, the opportunity to make a lot of money. Um, and I was really worried about that, but I kind of followed my passions and I never regretted it like for one second. And so, um, so the answer to that is a resounding no, I would do nothing different. That's really, really great. Yeah. I, I've, I've also, you know, changed my career a few times, you know, um, so I can totally relate that it's not wasted time. Yeah, you're learning transferable skills. Um, you never know what your unique experience is going to bring to the table in a new setting. Um, and ultimately, it's just about the journey. You know, there's no, there's no, I mean, the destination is death. Like, yeah, spoiler <laughs> alert, that's it. Um, and I'm definitely not a believer in, okay, I'm going to get this job one day, and then I'm going to be happy. Or once I'm making more money, then I'm going to be happy. Um, I mean, I certainly won't turn it down. But I, you know, I think you're kind of living the journey. And I think the important thing is to just make sure you constantly check in with who you are. Uh, like who your authentic self is and if what you're doing with your time every day um, is in line with that. And that's something I, you know, work on pretty frequently and hard to do. Do you find that you do know yourself a lot better than let's say 10 years ago? Oh my gosh. Yes. 
definitely. And when, you know, 10 years ago, I would have said like, oh my gosh, someone in their 30s, that sounds so boring. Like if I described my life now to 20 something Rachel, it would be, um, yeah, it'd be shocking and awe. But I, but it's, I, you know, I love where I'm at now. And that, that maturity that comes with both experience and also like, you know, having new things that give you a different kind of purpose in your life is just so enriching. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I guess on that note, Dr. Rachel Diner, uh, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, it, it's been great not only learning about oysters, uh, but learning about your surfing, learning about your path, which is very different from a traditional scientist's path. I mean, you know, you're going from law into science. I have one last question for you, though. Do you still eat oysters? Oh, I get that so much. So most of my collaborators will not eat oysters anymore, just as a hard rule. And I've, the past several months, I've been like, yeah, I would do it. I would do it. But every time I've been presented with the opportunity, I just couldn't, I couldn't get myself to do it. So it's in, it's to be determined, probably verging on now, unfortunately, but I used to love them. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much again for coming on the show. Uh, it's been a real joy. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you.